Let's take a few moments, as we often do, and uh, we've kind of gotten through some business, and uh, just uh, to center ourselves, to take a few deep breaths, to invite uh, our awareness to, to recognize the Spirit of God who is in our midst already. God is the one who is always at work and always inviting, and that God promises that we're, we gather together, that, you, that uh, God will meet us there. So let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the ways in which you speak to us. We ask that you would speak to us today as well. Help us that in this space, as well as the rest of the day, the rest of the week, that we might be attuned to your presence and that whatever it is we need, we might, whatever it is that we are hungering and thirsting for, that you might meet us and provide that. We give you thanks in your name. Amen. There was a conference uh, many years ago in, in Great Britain. It was set up to discuss comparative religions. And as was the case in conferences like this, experts gathered not only to present, but to sit in rooms and to talk and discuss things, you know, big ideas. Uh, one such room was holding a discussion on Christianity and whether there was anything about Christianity that made it unique from other religions. So what, what makes Christianity unique, if anything, from other religions? And then we live in a world where, you know, there's a celebration of the similarities between religions, and it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But is there something, you know, I think every religion kind of brings something unique to the world. So what, and, and, and the brightest minds of the world, you know, they, they threw out suggestions, and then people would knock them down and say, that's not really unique. So for, for, for example, someone might say, the incarnation is unique to Christianity, and it's, oh, not really. You know, the, 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 the idea that uh, God, uh, well, God would take on flesh and become human, like that goes back. There's a lot of stories like that. Um, other versions have God appearing in human form. The resurrection, you know, which is the crux of our faith, Paul would say. Not, not entirely unique, this idea that people could come back to life. That's, that's, uh, that shows up in other world religions. And, and other religions have accounts of that. So the debate went on for some time, and then the story goes, and, and who knows if this is true, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and... Uh, an influential theologian and author of, uh, you know, on Christianity. And he interrupted, and he's like, what's the rumpus about? You have to imagine a professor in Oxford. You know, he's a professor at Oxford, so I'm not going to try to say it with, a, with an accent. But they explained what that is. You know, they're discussing, you know, what makes, what's Christianity's unique contribution to the world? And as the story goes, a bit of a legend, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's Grace. Grace. God's unmerited favor. They discussed it further, and as the story goes, everyone kind of agreed that this was, at least in its interpretation and the way in which it's lived out, is somewhat unique to Christianity. I mean, nothing's completely new under the sun, but there's a uniqueness to it. That, that God would offer us life, salvation, peace, joy, gifts beyond any measure, and all for free, without strings attached even, we might believe without having to earn it, just free, lavish, and unmerited grace. You know, the Buddhist uh, eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant even in the Old Testament, the Muslim code of law, each of these don't have quite the same understanding of grace and, and certainly don't make it the focus of their understanding of the divine. That's one thing that makes Christianity somewhat unique. It dares to make God's love 
unconditional, unmerited. Not only do we not have to earn it, but that we can't earn it. Well, doing anything to earn it, Jesus came to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, healing to the sick, salvation to all who receive without having to do anything to earn it, grace. And grace is so radical and so profound that it's something that even the most sincere followers of Jesus tends to not really get. And this is what really bothers me. One of the unique contributions to the world, Christianity, brings to the world is this understanding of grace. But it's not, it's not always what Christians are known for. And deeply ironic. Sadly, I fear in the church, especially Christians, we have a hard time with this. And it is deeply ironic. And one thing that makes our faith truly unique is the one thing that we fail to give. So today, as we continue in this series on the basics, we've talked really generically, very generally about the nature of God, that God is um, eternal, massive, infinite, and that God is wise and that God is uh, loving, very, very generally. We can get into the specifics. And last week we talked a little bit about the theology of humans. You know, what role, what do we believe about humans? Are they inherently good, inherently bad? And what does it mean to, to have value even when we get out of tune with the great harmony in the world? And today we're going to talk a really about a basic understanding of grace. So I'm going to share a little bit. I'm going to teach a little bit here for a second. And I'm going to share specifically a Wesleyan understanding of grace. I want to share another story that may or may not be entirely true, a bit of a legend um, that's been probably hyperbolized, but I think it, it carries a good point. There was this story that also in Great Britain, this is like a Great Britain Sunday. Anyone here do a good accent? No? Okay. Next time. Um, there was a story that like up in the, like out in the, out in the boonies, and the, the, okay, so we're, um, we're United Methodist Church, so our founder is John Wesley. He was an Anglican priest. Um, in England. And he, we're going to talk a little bit about Wesley's view of grace here, but I remember there was a story that people, villagers, there was this really sh- significant shift in theology where this guy by the name of Calvin, and I'm, I'm going to play with this a little bit, so just work with me, but this guy named Calvin, he came up with Calvinism. Anyone have heard this? Understand? Yeah, yeah and, and I'm not an expert, so don't quote me on any of this, but I'm just, just work with me here. Give me, give me some grace, okay? So one of the, one of the, ideas around Calvinism, not, not a perfect, I'm not going to explain it perfectly because I'm not a Calvinist, but is this idea that, that um, God's grace, uh, that humans are so inherently broken that we don't even have the ability to respond to God's grace, okay? That only God's grace gives us the ability to respond to God's grace, and that only, and God's grace isn't given to everyone, and so only some people receive God's grace, and those people respond, and those people are saved, and they were predestined to save. God always knew God was going to save them. Do, do you, you track what I'm saying? Anyone heard this kind of idea before? All right. This is not what we believe, but it is what some Christians believe. And here's how that was like misinterpreted. All right, and, and every type of theology can be misinterpreted. So individuals in various villages and towns in England were hearing this message of, of Calvinism, and, and uh, um, what it became to mean, and this is not what it means, but this is there, almost this idea that if you weren't saved yet, you were never going to be. Like if I'm not a Christian, then God must not have given me that grace. And so this great sense of despair fell on people. 
this great fear, like God must be angry with me, God must not love me, there's no hope for me. Well, John Wesley came along, amongst many others, and they taught this really radical idea about God, that God loved everyone, and that God's grace was available to everyone, and that you could respond to God's grace today. And I'm telling you what, people are like, what? This is the best news ever. It was like literally, you know, the good news. And so there was this big revival. This was part of the big revival that led to United Methodism, if you follow the, the track. So here's another way to think about it. Uh, Christians typically believe in two types of grace. So we can put up that slide, justifying grace and sanctifying grace. So we can get into a little bit of theology here. Justifying grace is, uh, you almost think of like a house, okay? And uh, the house is what it means to be a Christian. So when, you live, when you're in the house, you're, you're in the family. You're part of this, this faith, this religion. And justifying grace is the threshold to the house, you know? So you've got this threshold, and I'm out of the room, and I'm in the room, okay? So now I'm a Christian. Get it? Sorry, guys. Going to hell. I'm in or I'm out. And the threshold is this justifying grace that either you're in or you're out and what it means to be a Christian. And, uh, um, and then once you're in the house, what does it mean to live inside the house? That's what we call sanctifying grace. So God saves us. We receive Jesus into our hearts. You know, We say the sinner's prayer. We cross the threshold we're in. And then once we're in, God's sanctifying work begins to To work on us and shape us and help us grow, become. This is very, stand, I'm not elaborating, this is kind of standard basic theology. Now, here's what Wesley brought in. He said, okay, you got justifying grace, that kind of gets us across the threshold. You got sanctifying grace, God's unmerited favor that helps us change once we're Christians, working in our lives. Wesley said there's actually another grace, what he called preventing grace or prevenient grace. And it's, it's so obvious that I'm, I'm sure other people thought of it before him, but he probably just came up with a cool term for it. But it's just this idea that, you guys ready for this? This is crazy. Before you're ever in the house, like maybe you're just looking in, that God's grace is available to you there too. And that God's grace is still working in the grand world. That God is still working in lives. Wesley thought of it, called it preventing grace because it's God's grace that's just poured out in the whole world that keeps the whole world from getting too bad. That's one way to think about it. But prevenient grace, that God's grace is at work in your life before you even respond to it, enabling you to receive it, to experience it. This has profound implications because, you know, it's this idea that God can use people from other religions to do amazing things. That, people, that God can use people who aren't even Christians, that God can work in and provide grace to people, and that God is at work in the world in ways that it, people that don't even believe in God, that God is still, God's grace is everywhere working at all times. Prevenient grace. Okay. If that sounds really boring and, you're not, and it doesn't impact you, let's think about it in a different way. Here's been my experience of churches in the past. You can go to the next slide. Some of you have seen this. We've talked about this many times. Our parent church talks about this often. Here's how it goes to church. If you want to go to church, first you have to learn how to behave the right way. You know, there's a certain way to behave. You have to dress accordingly. Don't wear jeans in worship, which I've been told. Be nice 
Be a good citizen, don't break the law. You know, you have to learn to behave. And if you behave the right way, then the next important thing, you gotta believe the right stuff. And you can't believe the wrong stuff. And our church knows what's true. So if you believe what we believe, and you behave the way we want you to behave, then you can belong. Anyone ever experienced communities like this before? Yeah. Well, we of course believe, you can go to the next one, that this should be reversed. That, um, I think there's a slide, one more. Yeah, thank you. That before we ever get to talk about what you believe, or how to behave, that you can belong. Because God's grace enables it. God's grace works in all people's lives. It's why in our church, we've had, in in my ministry practice, we've had a handful of people who are self-proclaimed agnostic or atheists that I would consider them a part of our church. It's not about what they believe. It's about, you know, they can be a part of the community. You can belong first. And only in the context of belonging do we talk about, okay, what do we believe? There are some things that I believe. There are some things that our church officially believes. It's a little bit more flexible than some other congregations, but we still have beliefs. We're not making, you know, we just don't believe. I don't believe just everything. I believe certain things. I don't think that belief and what I believe and what you believe should separate our belonging, but I believe things, and I think there is a proper way to behave, right? I, I think when we get out of tune, we can really hurt each other. So there is, but all of that is in the context of belonging. So what I mean by, and if you go to the next slide, Provenient grace enables God's work amongst everyone. And when we choose to believe, we kind of cross that threshold and we have an experience and, you know, oftentimes the appropriate response is to be baptized or to remember your baptism if you were baptized as a child because your parents is believing for you. Um, And then in the midst of that, God's grace also shapes and changes us, makes us into the best version of ourselves, what we call sanctification. Okay. So this is kind of basic theology, basic theology. So why does any of this matter? Because I think, as I've said already, that grace, gosh, it's the most important thing we do. I make mistakes. I've made mistakes. And I'm telling you what. I've made mistakes as a pastor. I've even hurt people in the past. And some people responded with grace and said, hey, you're out of tune. What do you need to get into tune? And some people were like, I don't want you to be my pastor anymore. And I get it. I don't blame them. That's fair. But I need grace. And unless there's someone in here who's perfect, you need grace too. That's why this is so important. There's a short movie called Babette's Feast. Uh, Anyone familiar with this classic 1987 uh, it's the first film from Denmark to win an Oscar, so I'm, I'm sure it's on your bucket list of films to watch, but uh, uh, for a for, foreign language film. It's a story, it tells a story of Babette, and, and I, I ran into this originally from uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He, he talks about it, so I'm, I'm pulling from that, but she's a cook from Paris. Uh, Babette is this cook from Paris during the French Revolution, and she had to leave Paris fleeing for her life, so she's, uh, she's able to connect with this a friend of a friend, and she moves to this small village in Denmark where she's hired as a housekeeper. So she's this um, this really uh, great, fancy, phenomenal chef from Paris. And you're going to Paris soon. Yeah, sorry. Nothing you guys needed to know. <laughs> but I just thought of it. You! 
You're going to eat some fancy food. I mean, Paris is kind of like known for, you know, its cuisine. So this is a chef from Paris who ends up in this small town in Denmark. And the, the home that she moves into, where she becomes this housekeeper, is so far removed from the riches of Paris. In fact, she ends up caring for two older women who were daughters of a very strict priest who started this small church in the town. And the older sisters now run the ministry, and they carry on this beautiful legacy of simplicity and strictness. They intentionally, which is various expressions of faith and various religions do this, and it's part of our tradition as Christians in, in the big C of the word, they intentionally avoided pleasures in life. None. No goodness. No flavor. So this chef from Paris goes from the kitchens of Paris to making boiled bread with ale. Okay? Now what is that? I didn't know. I googled it. Here it is. Now, how do you get this lovely concoction? Well, the bread is torn into pieces, and then ale and water are poured in over it, and they sit overnight. And the next morning, the mixture is blended and or strained, flavored, but not in this village, and cooked down to the consistency of porridge. Mmm, so yummy. And the less the spices, the better. No pleasure, no flavor, no goodness. These women were holy women. And they cannot be bothered with the richness of the world. Because they believed salvation came from depriving yourself. They believed. So Babette cooks and cares for them, making them things like boiled bread and simple dried fish for the next 14 years. Doing as they say, leaving her entire world behind because she was running for her life. And as a cook, it's, it's pretty similar to like living in a town where they outlined, you know, paint and canvas, or, or uh, if you're a dancer, going to that one movie, what's that? You know what movie I'm talking about? Footloose. It's like that. It's like, no, you're not allowed to dance here. It's outlawed, right? So one day, though, um, after she's lived in this town for a long time, she finds out that she's won the lottery, because she still had like residence in Paris or something, but it's from a ticket a friend kept for her in Paris, and Babette won 10,000 francs. And in that single moment, Babette goes from this poor refugee to, to great wealth, enough to start a whole new life in Paris. And she decides to celebrate this big thing. So she's, she's going to plan a feast. And it would be like the, police, the feast that she used to, to plan like 15 years ago. She wouldn't make anything less than perfect. Well, the sisters, if you can imagine the, the staunch religious sisters, they're, they're very nervous about this. It all sounded very rich, very tempting. There were drinks involved and fine meats and flavor and desserts, the whole works. But out of pity for her, they consigned. They let her plan this feast. And, 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 and plan is the word for it. She, she plans a true Peruvian feast, orders food and drinks and spices from all over the world and spend, you know, you know, spends months putting it together. And the night comes, and she has prepared it all perfectly down to the china. She's ordered all of this in. And in attendance are the two sisters, a few friends from church who are just as stingy as her, and this general who happens to be visiting. Of all the guests, the general who was not kind of who didn't hold on to these beliefs of simplicity would be the only one who could really experience the meal beyond, you know, like this. So, so dinner is served, and it's as wonderful as you can imagine. The smell alone, you know, just fantastic. The meats and the sides, just perfectly good. She didn't forget how to cook any of it. And they eat, and while they were, they were skeptical, they couldn't help but enjoy it. 
And the general who had a, a nice meals before was so overwhelmed by the meal, it was better than anything he had before, and so much so that he rose during the meal and gave a speech. It's that kind of meal. I don't know if you've had a meal where you felt like you had to give a speech. You've had a little bit too, too much to drink, and it's so good. Um, I've been to a few restaurants where I wanted to stand up and say something. It was that kind of meal. And they put generals to their feet. Well, after dinner, Babette sat in the kitchen you know, tired from serving the guests and cooking all this. And the, the sisters, the two religious, stuffy sisters walk in and they thank Babette and ask her, so Babette, now that this celebration is done, when will you be moving back to Paris? And Babette replies, oh, I'm not going back to Paris. All of my friends there are gone. I have nothing to go back to. Plus, I don't have any money. And the sisters are like, but what about the 10,000 that you won? You won the lottery. And Babette said, it's all gone. And then it sank in. And the sisters realized where all the money went. And they almost go pale. Did she really waste all of her wealth and all of the opportunities for a second chance on one meal? The sisters couldn't believe it. And Babette explained, don't worry, that's just how much a dinner for 12 costs at a nice cafe in Paris. And they're like, you didn't have to do this for us. She said, I didn't just do it for you, I did it for me too. I love the story for a number of reasons, but mostly this. She gave all that she had to people who were nearly incapable of being able to appreciate it. What a terrible way to give everything. Philip Yancey does talk about this in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He adds this. He says, grace came to them in the form of a feast, Babette's feast, a meal of a lifetime lavished on those who in no way earned it, but even more so, who barely possessed the facilities to receive it. And a little town of Denmark, all the riches of the city came to their door, and they, they didn't even have the taste to receive it. I wonder how that would make some, I wonder how it would make them feel, you know? Like, what, did anyone hear that story? They spent $10,000, so to speak, on one meal when she could have invested. Did anyone think, wow, what a waste, especially on people who don't even like that kind of food? Anyone feel like that's a waste? I got a few nods. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Now you're starting to understand grace. Think about it. Think about the Gospels. You've, some of you have read through the Gospels. If you haven't, I recommend it. It's stories of Jesus. How many times did Jesus get in trouble for being too generous? I, I, didn't, even, I didn't spend a lot of time, and I came up with these stories. He tells the story of the prodigal son. You know what the story of the prodigal son? The, 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 the son goes away, and the dad, and he wastes all of his money, he throws, and the dad just welcomes him back. No, the dad throws a feast. Do you remember how the story ends? The brother's like, Dad, what about me? He's mad. The woman caught in adultery. She's like, the one who is without sin, throw the first stone. And they all leave, like, frustrated. Because he's just going to let this woman get off, get off the hook. Woman at the well, the, the man who is blind, uh, the story about healing someone on the Sabbath. How dare you heal somebody when we're supposed to be resting? My favorite, though, is the story of the laborers in the field. He tells a story where the, 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 the employer hires someone in the morning, said, I need you to work all day for $10. 
So they agree to that. And then at noontime, he needs more workers. So he hires them at noon. He says, I need you to work the rest of the day, half the day, and I'm going to pay you $10. And then at the last hour, he's like, hey, I still need more workers. I need you to work for just one hour. I'm going to pay you $10. And the workers who've been working all day, how do they feel? Well, they're mad about it. What a waste. So unfair. In fact, this is what it says in Matthew 20. It says the, 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 the character in this story talks to the workers who are mad. And he says, do I not have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? This is a parable Jesus is telling, but this is Jesus. Are you envious because I'm generous? Grace is something so radically and extravagantly generous that it bothers those of us who are more sensible and believe that you have to work for what you earn. It does. So much so that we come up with, <sighs> I taught you some basic Wesleyan theology, now I'm going to make fun of it, so just get over it, okay? We come up with really complicated terms for grace, and we attach a lot of connections and limitations to it so that, you know, it feels like you've gotta, got to earn it. How can you even experience grace if you don't know what justifying grace is? No. No, 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 no. It's so radically generous. Friends, God's grace is so great, we don't, even, we're like, we don't even have the full capacity to understand it. Here's how Jesus explains it. It's like light, okay? It's light that's shining in darkness. John chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Him was life, and the life was the light of the, all humankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and my favorite translation says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He came like a feast to those who only had boiled bread their whole lives, and they don't get it. They're not used to it. They're not used to unconditional love. And you know what? I'm not used to unconditional love. Let me tell you why. It's not how the world works. How many times can you screw up at work and still have a job? Usually a number. How many times can you ignore your son and still have a relationship? How many times can you ruin things with your spouse and still have a spouse? How many times can you steal from someone and still have your freedom? That's just not how life works. So we put that on God. We think God has limits. We see God's forgiveness has limits. There might be, you know. But God says, you can ignore me all you want, hurt me, ruin me, steal from me, and I will never stop loving you. Never. Unconditional grace. But it's hard to understand that because we don't see it. We are people living in darkness in a world that doesn't always have grace. What happens to people who live in darkness, who spend most of their time in darkness? You, you, you spend time in, you ever been in a dark room and your eyes have had time to adjust to it and then someone flips on the light? It's like shocking, isn't it? That's God's grace. It's like, I'm not, I'm not even used to, this is like, I don't even, turn the light back off, like you're killing me, I'm trying to sleep here. When people are uncomfortable with radical, extravagant grace, it's because their eyes have adjusted to a world without grace. We're just used to a world without grace. And so when we see it, it feels, it feels overwhelming. Here's my final invitation in God's grace. Wherever you find yourself, belong, believe, behave, whether you're 
trusting in God's grace to transform you and make you into the best version of yourself, whether you're holding on to God's grace to know that you are, in fact, loved and saved and whatever that means for you, whether, whether you're just trusting that God's grace is able to work in ways that I don't understand in this world and I just want to be a conduit of it. And it's, you know, it's that prevenient grace that's just everywhere and God is present and he's, he's enabling me to have grace as well. Wherever you are, here's what I want you to know. God has grace for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you've lost, whatever you're struggling with, whatever big decision you have to make, whatever wrong choice you've made in the past, there is grace. And the more we allow ourselves to experience it, the easier it becomes for us to give it to other people. And that is essential to being God's people. Let's pray. God, we've been living on boiled bread for too long. Give us a taste of your goodness and help us offer it to others. Help us live so extravagantly generous in how we treat others, the forgiveness that we offer, the ways in which we're willing to let go of shame and fear, we might give one another grace just as you have given us grace, that we might, that you might forgive our trespasses just as we forgive those who trespass against us, something that we pray every week. Help us to understand your grace in our lives and in our relationships. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.